back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Today's story, the incredible true story of Joan of Arc. Part 1, The Prophecy. The beginning of the true story of the young girl who saved France in its hour of need, and the prophecy that foretold it. Her short life was well documented. The details of her every movement and action from her birth in the little village of Don Remy in 1412 until her death in 1431, having been compiled through trial testimony involving hundreds of witnesses before and after her death, from her inquisition, from royal archives, and from public accounts. She is known in English as Joan of Arc, but she was known and called by the French Jeanne d'Arc. She is today heralded as being one of the most remarkable figures in the story of the human race, and her extraordinary life is a fascinating tale of devotion, faith, and courage. In the year 1415, in Europe, the independent nation of France was down on its knees and very close to surrendering to English rule. They had been at war with France since 1337, a war which became known as the Hundred Years' War, although it actually lasted 118 years. The war actually began as a conflict over succession between the English Plantagenet family and the French House of Valois. A series of battles and broken treaties followed between 1337 and 1412, at which point England had the upper hand. But a stubborn, young, rightful French king, buoyed up by the will of many of the French people, stood in the way of England adding France to their crown. By 1412, the rightful inheritor of the kingship of France, by their code of law, was the eldest son of the French king, known to the French as the Dauphin. His name was Charles. He had a host of problems to deal with, among them, one, it was rumored that he was the illegitimate son of the king, a product of an affair between the king's brother, Louis, Duke of Orléans, and the king's wife, Queen Isabeau. Two, Charles's father, King Charles VI, was insane. An example, he believed at times that he was a huge block of ice and could shatter any moment, which did not bode well for his ability to run an efficient army or make kingly decisions. Three, young Charles was up against a very tough English force which had beaten his armies at every turn. He had to watch helplessly as one city after another had fallen to the attacking English. By 1415, the port city of Harfleur had fallen, giving the English a fast and easy means to ferry more troops and supplies to their occupying forces. And as if all these problems weren't enough, Charles's mother, Queen Isabeau, was not a great lover of France. She had tested the wind of fortune, found it lacking for France, and agreed lately to sign a treaty with England's King Henry V, who was a cruel and relentless young man and strong military leader with an eye on conquering France and its people. The treaty declared that the Dauphin was illegitimate, and it gave to the English king the hand of the French queen's daughter, Princess Catherine, in marriage. This was the Treaty of Troyes, spelled like Troyes in English, but pronounced Troyes. All Henry and Catherine had to do was have a boy child, and France would be Henry V's. A rotten deal for young Charles, who, despite loss after loss, was still hanging on, surrounded by a corps of the French citizens who did not want to lose their country to England. Too many husbands and sons had died already trying to save it, and most of the French people were not ready to throw in the towel. After Harfleur fell, the Battle of Agincourt, a huge defeat for the French, took place, 
then K.N. fell, and after that, Rowan. During these hard times, an old prophecy had emerged, and it had passed like wildfire from one Frenchman to another. No one was quite sure where it had come from. Some said it had come from Merlin the Wizard in the land of the Celts. Others thought it came from a 7th century monk named St. Bede the Venerable. And still others said it might have come from Euglid of Hungary. Regardless of who it had come from, it had been around a long time, and never made any sense until now. The prophecy was terrifying, yet offered hope to a desperate people. It went like this. France will be lost by a woman, but it will be restored by a virgin from the borders of Lorraine. The French people knew that the first part of the prophecy had already come true with the Queen's treaty with England, the Treaty of Troyes. But the second part made no sense. A virgin would save France? It was a strange prophecy. Women, for the most part, had little to no role in politics, and none in war. But the people of France had faith, and they prayed, they fought, and they waited for an answer. And that answer was to arrive soon. Jean d'Arc was born in 1412 in the little village of Domremy in northeast France, near the border of Lorraine. Her father, Jacques d'Arc, was a farmer and well-respected in the community. And his wife, Isabelle, maintained the small, crooked house and its garden located between a stand of woods and the town church. Like most peasant children, Jean did not attend school. There were no schools, and what learning there was was found at home or at the church, which was Catholic, and there Jean attended Mass, learned about the saints and God and Jesus and the commandments. As she grew, she took on the duties of the house and the little garden out front which faced the church. Jean was eight years old when France fell. Henry V had made his way to Troyes, and it was here that the next treaty of the Hundred Years' War was signed. And it was in Troyes that Queen Isabeau had given away the future of France with her signature. By 1425, a child had been born to Henry and Catherine, and England rushed to crown the baby and claim France for their own. But one man still stood in their way. It was Charles VII, the eldest son of the now-dead French king, and he was making it clear that he was still the king of France and that the treaty, as far as he was concerned, was not legal without his consent. The Dauphin king controlled only a few territories and the city of Bourges in central France. In fact, he was called in those trying days the king of Bourges, for that was about all he really controlled. It was now 1425. It was a hot summer day, and Jeanne was busy at work in her garden when a flash of light from the church caught her eye. She thought it was just the sun reacting with the sweat dripping from her brow as she worked. But something caused her to turn and look, and as she did so, a blinding light filled the garden. Wreathed in beams of light was an angel, which she recognized as St. Michael, and he was wearing a suit of armor and had wings rising up from his shoulders. As a vision, he was both terrifying and beautiful, and she remained glued to the spot where she'd been kneeling, unable to move. Soon, two figures joined him, both beautiful young women, and Jean recognized them both at once. The first was St. Catherine of Alexandria, a brave princess who had defied the Roman Emperor Maxentius when he began to persecute Christians. Maxentius had done everything he could think of to make her renounce her Christianity, from threatening the death penalty to offering to marry her. 
but nothing had worked. Catherine had been beheaded as a mere teenager, dying a defiant virgin, a young woman who had refused to allow her faith to be broken. The other angel at Michael's shoulders was Saint Margaret of Antioch. Like Catherine, Margaret was a teenage martyr, the daughter of a pagan priest who promptly disowned her when she became a Christian. A Roman governor attempted to marry her also, but she clung to her faith and her virginity. She was tortured and killed for her faith. Though it is uncertain where Jeanne could have learned about these two women and their past, their names became known to her in this vision. She fell to her knees, as they told her that she had been chosen to fulfill a duty for God, that duty being to drive the English out of France. And in doing so, she was to get the Dauphin to Rams and crown him king. Thus begins one of the most fascinating stories in human history. You may be an agnostic, or you may be a believer. Regardless of how Jeanne got the message, she made it clear to a number of people exactly what she had seen and heard, and the visions that followed, and she followed the instructions given to her, performing her given role perfectly, and accomplishing what most people considered to have been an impossible mission. Could she have done this without some kind of divine guidance? That's for you to decide. But for a 13-year-old farm girl with no concept of politics or how to wage war, the task of defeating and removing 10,000 English warriors from France and crowning a king who was at the top of England's most wanted dead or alive list was a pretty daunting task. The prophecy? France shall be lost by a woman, but it will be saved by a virgin from the borders of Lorraine. Jeanne d'Arc was France's last hope. The angels continued to visit Jeanne for the next three years, and for those three years she told no one. In August of 1428, the English Earl of Salisbury landed at Calais, and there was joined by another army from Bedford, giving him 10,000 fighting men. Their purpose? To drive Charles the Dauphin and his men out of France and claim France for England once and for all. As the English armies attacked, French cities began to fall in their wake. Chartres, Jeanville, Mung, Beaugency, Jargeau, until the only city of any size that they hadn't conquered was Orléans. By May of 1428, the angels appearing to Jeanne were pressing hard. They told her that God had chosen her for a reason. If some duke or noble rode forth in one, that would not inspire the hearts of the French people, as would a young girl. For a young peasant girl to win would require faith, and faith was what France most desperately needed. The nearest garrison was Valcoulour, a city about twelve miles from Don Remey. Her voices had told her that she needed to see the garrison commander, Robert Baudricourt, and get him to agree to providing her with an escort to Chinon, where the future Charles VII, the young Dauphine, was located. Jean's first cousin, Durand Lassois, lived with his wife near Valcoulour, so she wrote him, asking if he would agree to come and get her, so she could visit with him and his wife. While staying with them, she would try to get an audience with the commander. She asked for and received permission from her parents to visit with her cousin, and within a few days, Durand came to get her. On the ride back, she opened up to Durand regarding her real reasons for the visit, which included seeing Captain Baudricourt in order to ask him for an escort to Chinon. Lassois was stunned. Why do you need to go to Chinon? That's a war zone. 
That would be a very dangerous trip. I need to crown the Dauphine at Rams, she answered. Durand recalled later that all he could do was stare at her in amazement. She looked right back at him, calm and resolute, a different light shining in her eyes. Haven't you heard, she said with a smile, that France would be ruined by a woman and later restored by a virgin? Lassois was starting to see the pieces come together. He knew as well as any Frenchman that Isabeau had signed away her country, and he had heard the prophecy many times. But now, here it was, in the flesh, looking him in the face. A few years ago he might have dismissed it as a girlish prank, but something about her was dead serious. She was on a mission. Robert de Baudricourt recognized the face of Durand Lassois as he dismounted and turned to help the young lady off her mount. The girl wore a torn, tattered red dress that had been mended often. Her body was slender, and her features pinched. What was most unusual about her were her eyes, her blue eyes. They seemed lit from the inside, very deep and purposeful. They had opened wide in recognition when she saw him, although he was sure he'd never seen her before. Durand introduced her to him, and she immediately began speaking to him with certainty and confidence. I have come to see you on the part of my lord, she told him, in order that you may send word to the Dauphine to hold fast and not seize war against his enemies. This was a very bold and brazen way to introduce herself, Baudricourt thought, and he was about to respond, but he was interrupted as she continued. Before mid-Lent, she said, the lord will give him help. In truth, the kingdom belongs not to the Dauphine, but to her lord she said. All this, and the years of having angels deliver their commands to her, were bottled up inside her. The result was not pleasing to the captain of the garrison. When she insisted that she would lead the Dauphine to his coronation, he finally got a word in edgewise. Who is this lord of yours? he asked, thinking it was a lord or a duke. She answered, God. With more patience and time, De Baudricourt probably could have calmed the situation and had a conversation with Jean, and Jean, with practice and the wisdom that comes with age, could have been less bold and more able to conduct a two-way conversation. But she was a sixteen-year-old farm girl with absolutely no experience in the outside world. De Baudricourt had run out of patience. He looked up at Lesbois. "'Take this girl back to her father and box her ears,' he said." She returned to Don Remé dejected, but not beaten. Within two weeks, it happened that the English had raided and burned Don Remé, burning down the church, but that didn't stop the saints from visiting her, and they were just as insistent as ever. By January of 1429, Jeanne had left Don Remé forever. She had returned to Valcalure to help as nurse and helper for Durant's wife Jeanne, who was having a baby. News came that Orléans was under siege and the English were camped only seventy-five miles from Bourges, where Charles was trying to hang on to the last vestiges of his country. We'll return to our episode right after this message from our sponsors. And now, back to our show. While in Valcalure, she won the heart and support of Jean de Metz, who was a young squire under the command of de Baudricourt. Jean de Metz had been there for her first meeting with the captain, and as he saw her walking toward the garrison now, he guessed that she was seeking a second audience with him. 
He stopped and said hello, and they talked. This time she did not rush. She just spoke frankly and openly, and she won him over. He agreed to stay by her side until she got her audience with the king. She again tried to convince de Baudricourt to provide her with an escort, but again he just could not believe that she was on a mission from God. In the middle of their conversation, she was given a vision. She told the captain that at this very moment the Dauphine's forces were about to suffer a terrible defeat. For the second time, Robert de Baudricourt had the distinct impression he was speaking with a lunatic. There was no way she could know what was happening hundreds of miles away to the Dauphine's forces. He ordered John out of his office. A few days later, the news of the Dauphine's humiliating defeat reached the garrison at Valcalure. The French and Scottish army, for the Scots had sided with the French, had tried to stop a baggage train bringing supplies to the English forces that were surrounding Orléans. But the English were expecting the attack, and six hundred fighting men for the Dauphine had been cut down by arrows fired from well-positioned English forces. The English lost only four men. It was a demoralizing loss for the French. It had all happened the day and time that de Baudricourt had been speaking with Jean. When the news reached Valcolour, and reached Robert de Baudricourt, the truth of it hit the captain like a ton of bricks. She had seen it all. He didn't know or care how she had done it, but she had. Maybe she was the savior of France. He immediately called her to the garrison and agreed to provide her with an escort of knights that included her friend Jean and three others. At this point, thought de Baudricourt, neither he nor the Dauvine had anything left to lose. To reach Chinon would take more than a week of hard riding during the night to avoid being seen by English forces or those who were sympathetic to the English. Jean was outfitted with men's clothing and a suit of armor. For a woman to wear men's clothing in those days was heresy. It was illegal. But she had to do it for her own protection. Her hair was cut short, and she was given a sword by the townspeople of Valcalure. She had purchased a horse with the wages she had made working odd jobs in the town. Jean de Metz's fellow knight and friend Bertrand Polengi paid for their journey. They left Valcalure February 23rd and rode for twelve days, sleeping by day and traveling by night, until they reached Chinon on March 6th, 1429. Her companions later said that she never cussed and never showed any doubt or fear. She slept safely at night between Jean and Bertrand, who were ready at any time to sacrifice their lives for hers. Charles was in Chinon, and he was in desperate straits. He had almost given up hope. When a courier came to his door and announced that a young peasant girl dressed in knight's clothing and claiming to be sent by God was seeking an audience with him, he decided she would have to pass a test before he would allow her the opportunity. He changed his clothing, donning an outfit from one of his courtiers, so that he would not be recognizable as a king, and at a prearranged time Jean was escorted into a room full of similarly dressed men. If she could identify him, Charles had commanded, she would be allowed a meeting. All eyes were upon her as she entered the room. There was something about her that commanded the king's attention. She seemed focused inward. Her eyes scanned every face in the room, and when they landed on Charles, they widened in direct recognition of him, although she had had no idea of what he looked like. She fell to her knees in front of him, throwing her arms around his legs, and he chided her, 
telling her that she had picked the wrong man, testing her faith. But she couldn't be shaken. Charles was awestruck with her faith, which seemed preordained, and he granted her an interview. She was seventeen years old. The young Dauphine was twenty-six. History doesn't tell us what was said. Jeanne never spoke of it afterwards, and neither did Charles. But she made a distinct impression upon him, and he ended the meeting believing that she had been sent by God, and that she would be there when he was crowned king. She would also lead his armies to victory. The Dauphin's advisers insisted on testing her to see if she was a fraud, or a witch, or a heretic. She was brought to the theological center in Poitiers, and put through test after test by doctors, abbots, bishops, and counselors of law. If there was a reason to doubt her veracity and faith, they would find it. Throughout the process, which was grueling, she remained steadfast to her beliefs. They questioned her about the voices she was hearing, and the visions she had had. They asked if she believed in God. Then they asked her for a sign. All throughout the interrogations, she had said that she was going to break the siege at Orléans and crown Charles at Ramps. When one of the fathers asked her for a sign, she answered, I am not come to Poitiers to show signs. Send me to Orléans, where I shall show you signs that I have been sent by God. After three weeks of being questioned, watched closely, and studied, the board of examiners sent word to the Dauphin that Jean could be trusted. Charles was free to let her complete her task and provided her with a custom-fit suit of armor and a large white war-horse. She was given a sword and banner which contained an image of Jesus, flanked by two angels on a white background. She was assigned to lead a relief column to Orléans, financed by Charles's mother-in-law, Yolande of Aragon. Orléans was only days away from surrendering when word reached the people inside that a relief column led by a young girl, a virgin from Lorraine, who claimed that she was being sent by God to free Orléans and place the crown on Charles's head, was nearing the city. When the relief column came close to Orléans, one of the French commanders, Jean de Dunois, known also as Jean de Orléans, rode out to meet it and escort it in. The English did not surround the town completely. Instead, they had built garrisons or bastilles nearby and controlled the fort controlling the bridge that led across the Loire River to the city. That fort was named Les Tourelles. It was the main encampment for the English and the strategic key to the city. Other ways were used to get in and out of Orléans, but at great risk. With the arrival of the relief column, the people of Orléans, who had been under siege for six months, filled the streets to see the column enter the city. Then they saw her. They saw her banner first, waving above the heads of the crowd, a shining white flag that waved in the breeze. Then the mounted girl, riding a huge white charger that stepped proudly down the street, and smiling a wide smile that showed an absolute confidence, came into view. The entire city came apart with joy. They literally danced in the streets, praising God and chanting Jeanne d'Arc over and over again. The English, posted at points around the city, saw her as well, and jeered. They had all heard about her letter giving them a chance to flee before she and her army attacked. This was laughable. A little lunatic farm girl wasn't going to scare away the English army. She had even signed her letter, La Pucelle, the Maiden. Outside of Orléans, 
Word of Jean's presence at Orléans offered hope to tens of thousands of French citizens, and the result was that the French army began swelling with new recruits. The knight and commander Jean Dunois had left the city to get reinforcements, just days after her arrival, and when he returned on May 4th, he did so with a fresh army of fighting men. On the night of his return, and wanting to take advantage of the new sense of spirit, he took 1,500 of his best men and launched an assault on the English Bastille at saint Lou. He also purposely did not inform Jeanne of what he was doing, not trusting what she would do when she saw an actual battle taking place. She was fast asleep when the attack took place. She was awakened by the same voices which had been pushing her for years, and when she was told what was happening, she angrily ordered her mount to be readied while she donned her armor. She grabbed her sword and banner and rode at a hard gallop toward saint Lou, followed by an escort of her closest companions, all knights. When she reached the site of the first battle, there was death and destruction all around. Wounded Frenchmen were being carried back toward Orléans. Dead and dying men littered the battlefield. Blood and death were everywhere. The main force had moved on, closer to saint Lou, and the French forces, despite the fact that they outnumbered the English three to one, were losing badly. When Jeanne d'Arc reached the field of battle, her banner flying, the French fighting army, seeing her, shouted with joy and rallied. And for that moment, the English faltered. The French forces took advantage of it, surged forward, and pursued the English back to the fort's bell tower. For two hours they fought, until the English forces, thoroughly beaten, fell. St. Lou was now in French hands, and victory was won. Joan of Arc had struck no one with her sword, nor would she ever, at least not to kill. Her courage and her banner were a more deadly weapon against the English than any sword could have ever been. The following day, May 5th, was Ascension Day. Jeanne d'Arc enjoyed a day of feasting with the French army. She also took the opportunity to write a letter to the English seeking an end to the fighting. All they had to do was leave. She tied the letter around an arrow shaft and shot it into one of the English fortifications which had been erected around Orléans. After a few minutes, they appeared at the ramparts and began shouting to and at her, insulting everything from her character to her purity. They also called her a witch. On May 6th, the fighting began in earnest as the French forces targeted a series of bastilles that were protecting the gate at Les Tourelles. Jean's entourage now included a few hundred townspeople who had been caught up in the passion. They were poorly armed, and for the most part on foot, looking very much like a ragtag assortment of irregulars. They followed her on a charge on one English bastille named Boulevard, while the French commanders watched in nervous wonder, expecting she and her followers to be cut down by the English. Word quickly spread that an English relief column was coming from nearby St. Privy, and her French followers were seized with panic, knowing they would be slaughtered if caught between two fighting forces. They began to retreat, physically pulling her horse with them. The English seized the opportunity and came storming out of the Bastille, ready to cut them down as they retreated. At that critical moment, Jean wrenched her horse free from the hands that were leading it and turned to meet the charge, waving her banner and crying, Au nom de Dieu, in the name of God. For a fleeting moment, she stood alone, holding her banner high, and the English skidded to a halt. The French behind her turned back and rallied, and the assault began anew. This time it was successful. By the end of the day, St. Privy had been evacuated, 
Boulevard had fallen, and Les Augustines was in the hands of the French. All the obstacles that stood in the path of Les Tourelles were now gone. Now it was time to take back Orléans. On the night of May 6th, Jeanne bandaged her foot, which had received a wound during the battle for Les Augustines, and she shared a premonition with her confessor, Jean Pascarel. She told him, Tomorrow I have much to do, more than I have ever had, and tomorrow blood will leave my body above my breast. On May 7, 1429, at the break of dawn, the French army charged on the gates of Les Tourelles. Joan's white banner rode out before them. The troops behind her, according to one historian, seemed to think themselves immortal. Cannon fire boomed, swords crashed, men screamed, horses reared, and blood painted the ground. And all the while Jeanne stood her ground, her banner raised for all to see. At one point, close to noontime, Jeanne had dismounted and was trying to prop up a scaling ladder against the wall of the English fortress. Pascarelle, who stayed near her at all times, heard the unmistakable twang of an English bowstring above them, and the next moment Jeanne was being flung backward by the force of an arrow. Blood spilled upon the ground, and she gave a cry. Pascarelle rushed to her side and saw that the arrow had fully penetrated her shoulder, the head of it protruding from her back. She was frightened and in pain, and grasped his hand as he extended it to her to help her into the arms of the soldiers who had come to remove her from the field of fire. Once she had been moved away, one soldier came and offered to heal her with witchcraft, which she refused, saying she would rather die than sin. They had nothing to treat her with in those days other than cotton, oil, and bacon fat. The soldiers continued their assault throughout the day, having seen Jeanne d'Arc carried off the field, but they were tiring. The English cheered and jeered as she was carried off, shouting that the witch was dead. Near the end of the day, Jean Dunois decided to call off the assault, but Jean d'Arc, within earshot, asked him to wait a few minutes before giving the order. She quietly ordered a soldier to bring her her horse, painfully pulled herself into the saddle, and rode away to a nearby vineyard where she focused her thoughts amidst the pain and asked God for help. The sun was just beginning to set as the tired soldiers of the French army continued to fight. Suddenly, they saw Jeanne d'Arc approach, get off her mount, and grabbing the same scaling ladders she had dropped hours earlier, slammed it up against the wall, shouting, To et votre, et y entrez. All is yours. Go in. The English watched in amazement as a second life poured into the tired French warriors. Jeanne d'Arc grabbed her banner and swung it as they charged forward, climbing ladders and surging into the Bastille, forcing the English back to the drawbridge, then back to the last Barbasson of Les Tourelles. The battle for Orléans had been won by the French, but the biggest battles still lay ahead. Join us next week for Joan of Arc, Part 2, The Crowning of the King and the Capture of Joan of Arc. Meanwhile, if you enjoy our show, please do send us a review. We appreciate reviews very much. And here are a few recent ones. The first one, Best Podcast, 5 stars. Excellent storytelling, enjoyable and easy to listen to. I look forward to new stories every Sunday. That one from Irish Gal 333 Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Outstanding Storyteller, 5 stars. He does his homework and gets the facts from multiple sources. I travel a lot for work, 
so I tried to download the stories that pertain to the area that I'll be. I love them all. He has a great voice, and I enjoy hearing his input on certain things when he offers his point of view. He does try to stay as impartial as possible, which I really appreciate. Great work. Down from My Lack of One, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, my favorite podcast, five stars, a great storyteller. If you're half interested in history, this is a wonderful podcast. I smile every time I see a new podcast. That one from Fino, 1245, Apple Podcast, Ireland. And this one, great old stories, five stars. I greatly enjoy the old time stories, even the ones I've heard before. That one from I Will 91, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you very much for taking the time to send us reviews. They really help new people find our show, and we appreciate reviews very, very much. Also, please do think about supporting us at Patreon. For about the cost of a cup of blended coffee every month, you can really become a valuable supporter and asset to this show. It's patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. Please do enjoy our other 1001 shows. They also come out Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. 1001 Greatest Love Stories. 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. 1001 Stories for the Road, where we do our long-format adventure novels. We just started The Last of the Mohicans by James Fenimore Cooper there. And 1001 History's Best Storytellers, where we put all of our author interviews after they played here at 1001 Heroes. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We'll be back with Part 2 next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Everyone stay safe, and we'll be back soon.